have. So it just makes this transition from social hour to be quiet and listen to me for 40 minutes a little bit awkward. Um, so we're going to start with prayer because that's always the best way to start anything. Um, and uh, I know when Mario got up, he was a little bit emotional and I don't know if uh, all of you know or some of you know, but a lot of us lost a, a great friend this week, Sean Matheson. Um, and so that's heavy on our hearts. We have countless number of people from our community that are out sick this morning. Like, they dropped like flies overnight. We got emergency texts and had to divvy out responsibilities. So thanks to this entire community for making this Sunday happen when we were short, like, half of our volunteers. Um, it's amazing. Um, so we want to pray for them and just pray over our service. Um, so bow your heads with me and we will pray. God, we thank you, Lord. Um, we just thank you for the ability to even get up and get in our cars and drive here and meet in this space. For some people, it is hard to even get up. For some people, this honors race. I must increase, okay? So I need to increase in power, in status, in wealth, in influence. I need to increase my land. I need to increase my family size. I need to increase, and the list goes on, okay? First thing to keep in mind. Second thing to keep in mind is a, a model known as limited good, okay? So limited good says, the idea of limited good in this, in this uh, environment says that all good things exist in finite and limited qualities, okay? So see, the idea, the mentality, and you'll see where we're going, is I must increase or else I will decrease. This is the frame of reference that they're working from. I must increase do whatever I can to increase myself, or else I will decrease because other people will increase. There's no staying still. Does that make sense? You tracking? Okay. So, any... Lay <laughs> down the law. No fun in children's ministry. <laughs> Dare they? Don't they know we're talking about honor-shame culture in the ancient Mediterranean world? I don't understand. All right, so I think it's a game too, and they're so excited about it. It's fine. We can let ourselves be distracted by them. I don't have a problem with it. Okay, so uh, any advantage achieved by one individual or family is seen as a loss to others. If one person gains more, someone else necessarily loses. So now we jump back into the text. So now we see John the Baptist's disciples, and they see John's been pointing to Jesus, but now John is losing followers. He's losing influence. He's losing his, his whole identity, really. His, everything that he's been about, it's becoming less and less because people are going with Jesus. And so John's disciples, being wonderful supporters of John, are concerned. John, like, this isn't looking good for you. Your supporters are going, your disciples are going, and they're following someone else. They have a crisis mode um, where they're worried about John. So John the Baptist is going to respond to that, and how he responds is going to be really important to set the tone for the rest of the gospel and also to model for us our response. So without knowing it, John is already pointing to the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, where last is first and first is last, where the lower are brought high and the higher are brought low. And he's going to speak into this. This is before Jesus starts talking about it. The Holy Spirit has already done work in John where he already recognizes this. And so he's going to respond to his disciples um, from that place. So, point two, John the Baptist. He is the pointer. Okay? 
Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Most of the time when you're reading that last part, you don't, you, you don't, you maybe haven't had that frame of reference to understand how incredibly countercultural it was for John the Baptist to say that. We just read it and we're like, yes, of course, more of Jesus, less of me. We're used to that kind of mantra in the Christian church. This was a big deal. This was a big deal, and his disciples would have heard it as a big deal. So, a couple of things that we want to point out that he addresses. Point A, God is the giver of all things. Verse 27, he says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So James later, uh, Jesus' brother, the book of James, later goes on to say in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 7, he says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So reinforcing this idea. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Everything that you have comes from God. Like, I think that we often will nod our head and be like, yes, sure. But think about it. Everything that you have comes from God. So maybe you've made it in life, and you have achieved wealth and promotion. All that could go in a, in a second, in a moment, it could be gone. The only reason you have that job, that wealth, is because God's given it to you. You have a family. You're married. It's Valentine's Day. No pressure husbands, but, you know, I hear it's a rough one sometimes when my expectations aren't me. Actually, Nikki and Jamie did an amazing skit on that at the women's retreat. Men, you just don't get to know about it, but it was hysterical. <laughs> anyway, so there are, you are, you're married. You have children that have been given to you. There are people who cannot have children. The only reason that you could have children is because God allowed you to have children. The only reason that your body isn't doing what somebody else's body is doing right now is because God is sustaining your body in that way. The only reason air is going in and out right now as you sit there and you breathe is because God's giving you oxygen and then he's drawing out carbon dioxide. Did I get that right? Yeah. And I was like, I spoke too strongly about my specifics of science. Okay, so no one can receive unless God gives it. That includes all of your stuff. It includes all of your influence, all of your success, all of your ministry, all of your gifting, all of your calling. God gives it. So when I understand everything that I have and everything that I am, not as something that I am owed or something that is due to me, or something that I, I feel like I've worked hard and I've just achieved it from all of my hard work. When we look at that and we realize I only have anything that I have because the God of the universe gave it to me, it changes the way I spend the time that I'm given. It changes the way that I spend the money that I'm given. It changes the way that I spend my gifts and my talents that I'm given. Whose money I believe it is, is, will directly influence how I spend it. If I believe that my money is God's money, 
When I remember that, I spend it differently. I do. I don't always remember that. But when I do, I spend it differently because all of a sudden there's a weight to what I've been given. Your talents, the things that God has equipped you in, you spend them differently when you remember that God gave them to you for a purpose. You didn't learn, Tim didn't just learn how to lead worship and picked up a guitar and just did it. And I mean, something can happen to his voice tomorrow and now he cannot sing and lead worship. He can because God gave it to him and he's choosing to use it to bless the church and to give glory to God. Kenny, same story. Any of us with our gifts. All of you who rallied this morning to stuff bulletins at the last minute. I don't know what gifting that is, but it's a gift of some nature. <laughs> and you used it, so well done. But none of it, none of it, none of it, none of it is given to us from our own doing. It is all from God doling it out to us. And so it changes the way that we use it. John understood it. I don't have anything that God hasn't given me. This is the, the humble mindset to have. And this is what John is saying. Yeah, my ministry was great, but the point of what I was given, the point of the ministry I was given, was to point people to Jesus. And now they're going to Jesus. So the less people that are sticking with me and the more people that are leaving and going to Jesus, the better, the more fruitful my ministry has been. But it's because he understands that it's not about him. Are you tracking with me? I don't have Victoria in the front to say amen, amen. Yeah, right? Okay. Good job, guys. All right, so point B. The second thing that John teaches us is that my job is to point to Christ. In verse 28, he says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John has already been saying, we're only in chapter 3, and John's already been saying over and over, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. In uh, chapter 1, verse 15, it says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Verse 26 and 27, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who, one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Verse 34, and I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. He is constantly pointing to Jesus. His job is to point to Jesus. That's it. Using whatever time and talent and treasures that he's been given by God, taking those and using them to point to Jesus. So the issue at hand, the, the, the misunderstanding between John and his disciples is that the, John's relationship to Jesus needs clarification. He needs to clarify to, to them, it's not about me. Point C, it's all about Jesus. In verse 29, it says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So this word, um, the friend of the bridegroom, it's a, the actual word, I didn't write it down because I tried to pronounce it and it sounded really silly. So I just thought I would say the word that it is, is actually would have been the equivalent for like a best man in a wedding. So this best, John is basically saying, I am the best man and he is the groom. And Israel, and now soon to be the church, is the bride. So in the Old Testament, we hear about Israel being the bride of the Lord. 
So they're the bride, and it talks all about Israel being the bride. And now, as we move into the New Testament, and Jesus is going to establish the church as a family, the bride becomes the church, the followers of Jesus. Jesus is the bridegroom. So the best man role in Judean weddings would have been the one who organized the details and presided over the ceremony. In, in uh, ancient Jewish literature, when you read about this position in Judean weddings, that person, their greatest joy was found in watching the ceremony go off seamlessly. That's when they found joy, knowing the bride and the groom were being united and there was rejoicing and people were celebrating. This was his job. I know that oftentimes in weddings, like, I've never been a best man. I know, I've never been one. I'm still waiting for that opportunity. But I've been able to be a maid of honor before, and a couple of times, and it's awesome. It's great. You get to watch these people that you love join together, and it's, I mean, it's incredibly joyful. It's a little bit different for a maid of honor, because I feel like if you're not married and you're a maid of honor, there is a little bit of jealousy over the bride. I get that. But with the best man, I've never heard of a best man like being really jealous of the groom. So that's kind of the idea, is that John is saying, I'm not jealous. I'm not jealous of Jesus. My job is to rejoice that he is being united with his bride. I find my fulfillment and my joy is made complete when the people of God are getting to Jesus. I just want to get them there. And then I want to sit back and watch what happens when the bride is united with the bridegroom. And my joy is complete. It's a beautiful picture of it not being about John and it being all about Jesus. So John's joy is not found in his popularity, his calling, his following. It's found in knowing that his God-given ministry has been successful because people are getting to Jesus. John is always pointing to Jesus and not himself. In 1 Peter 4, verse 10 to 11 it says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God is the source of all that we have. And it is all for his glory. I mean, I love that passage as stewards of God's varied grace. Whatever you've been gifted in, whatever you've been given, that's God's grace on you that he's equipped you with. And use it, use what God has supplied in order that everything may be glorified through Jesus. I mean, I've been given everything from God and I am to use it to glorify God. We, we see it throughout scripture. It's, it's spelled out once again. So God is the source. All that we have is for his glory. It is from him and by him and through him and for him. So the next, the next um, line in your notes, there isn't a fill-in. Well, there's two, but there's not three. Oh, oh, I see what you did. So I was saying, don't put anything in the blank. But she, I said, no, it's nothing. And so she put nothing. <laughs> That was, my, that was my mistake. It's not about nothing. It's not about nothing. Let me make that clear. In your notes, it's blank, so you don't need to worry about it. So that is blank. That is for you to fill in. It's not about whatever it is that it's about for you. If 
that's nothing, then it's nothing, <laughs> whatever else that is. It's not about your job. You are not your occupation. If you think that you are your occupation, you have been deceived. You are not your occupation. What's the first thing people ask you when they meet you? What do you do? Or are you single? <laughs> One of those two, but either way, they're trying to define you. You are not your relationship status. Let me follow it up with that. You're not. You're not that. You're not your income level. You're not the city that you live in. You're not the gifts that you don't have that you see in other people that they do have. It's not about whatever that is for you that consumes you. It's about knowing God and making God known. That's what life is about. That's it. Done. End of sermon. End of story. Close the book. It's about knowing the God of the universe who already knows you and loves you. It's about getting after him and knowing who he is and being so changed by who he is because you've been able to get to know him that you can't help but point to him by the way that you live your life. My family's been in a season for uh, the past while and it's incredibly hard. Hardest season of my life, hands down. But through the hard stuff, I have been able to see God and know God in ways that I didn't before. In ways that I couldn't understand without being stripped of all of my self-sufficiency, all of my independence, where I think I'm strong enough and I'm solid enough where I can pull myself up on my bootstraps and somehow through. I've been stripped of that and broken, and I've seen God and, and more deeply understood who he was. And what it doesn't do is convict me and make me feel like, well, I should be a better evangelist. It doesn't do that. What it does is that by nature, because he is showing up all over my life right now, I can't help but talk about him. And not in like a, hey, have you met Jesus? Let me tell you about my friend. Not in that way. I mean, if you do that, bless you, and I pray that it works. But for me, for me, it's, how are you doing? Actually, really not so great, but it's unbelievable. God has been so faithful. I can't even not tell you about it right now because it's blown my mind. Not because I think I have some in, insider information that you don't have, so let me tell you. No, but because I actually am also the recipient of this good news. And I can't not tell you about it because it so affected me. For John, he was so affected by the God of the universe, he couldn't help, once understanding his ministry and his calling, he couldn't help but just say, you gotta get to Jesus. Go get to Jesus. And then when people went to Jesus, he's like, my job's done. It's not about whatever it is that it's been about for you. It's about knowing God and making him known. The fact that we can know the God of the universe is a huge deal. Just last week I walked down, I live in the River Village, and I walked down to the water, and I looked out, and it was like, I mean, I've lived in South Bay my whole life, and I've looked at that ocean how many times? But for some reason that time I looked at it and I thought like, that God who has been so intimately involved in my life and talks to me and, and loves me and leads me in God, he made that. Like, that's my God. Amen. That's a huge deal. That that same God, he knows me and he loves me and he wants me. It's a huge deal. The fact that we can know him is a big deal. Not just know him by association or by reputation or by name, but we can actually know him. And once we get a fresh glimpse of him, 
we're changed. And our job then is to point to Jesus, to point people to him. Verse 30 says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Remember all the way back in the beginning when we talked about the cultural framework, framework and how the idea would have been, I must increase or else I will decrease. I've got to keep climbing that corporate ladder. I've got to keep hustling. I've got to make a bigger name for myself. John says the exact opposite. He's got to increase, and I've got to decrease, because it's about him and it's not about me. I should expect to and rejoice when I decrease and he increases. So he's shaping a new kind of honor. And if you're familiar with the New Testament and Jesus, you'll, you'll know that as, as uh, it's in Mark's gospel, actually, in Mark 10, Jesus' disciples start arguing and, or they say, you know, uh, Jesus says, ask me whatever you want. And they say, well, we, wanna, we want the, the seat of honor next to you in glory. He's like, you don't even know what you're talking about. The last will be first and the first will be last. If you want the place of honor, it's suffering with me. Jesus concludes that statement in Mark 10 by presenting himself as the honorable example and says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Rarely does one find in Greek or Israelite literature a public figure who willingly and peacefully allows his honor and prestige to diminish without envy or hostile reaction. You don't really see it ever. Because it, it's, a, it's a fight, it's a race for that honor. And Jesus not only flips it on its head, but says, I'm going to lead by example all the way to the cross. Following Jesus and the upside down nature of his kingdom means he should increase and we should decrease. It should be more and more about him and less and less about me. So, point three, Jesus is the point. John is the pointer. Jesus is the point. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Okay, so this is John's like major Christology, where he spells out who Jesus is, and this kind of is going to propel us into the rest of the gospel. This is an aside from John. This isn't John the Baptist. I hope you're not getting confused by John and John the Baptist. John the gospel writer says this last part, not John the Baptist. He kind of spells out who this Jesus is. So if you think of it in terms of John the Baptist being the pointer, and he's saying it's all about Jesus, then John the gospel writer adds in, this is who he is. The guy that John is saying it's all about who must increase, here's why. Here's who he is. So we're going to break down. Why must he become greater? Because he is from heaven and bears witness to what he knows. The passage says, we are from earth, and we know earthly things. By nature, being from earth, we are finite and limited in our abilities, in our understanding. We are finite and limited. He is from heaven. He is infinite and has no limitation. 
And then this second part, he bears witness to what he knows. Yeah, I put it in all caps. Like, this kind of blew my mind, I'm not going to lie. I was, like, studying, and I was like, wait. It says, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. He who comes from heaven, and then he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. This might not be an aha moment for you, but for me, I read that, and I was like, oh, like, firsthand experience. He was already in heaven. He saw it all. He knows how it all works. He understands it. And then he came, and he bears witness to what he already knows. He's not saying, like, trust me, God said this. He's saying, I'm God. I'm him. And I know. I've been there. I understand how it all works. He bears witness to what he knows. First-hand testimony is, is so much better than second or third-hand, right? Like, I can be so much more adamant to tell you about something that I know that I know that I know because I experienced it than, like, a friend of a friend read this really old book, and it talked about this thing. And it's true. But if I have experienced it and I know, it carries so much more weight. Jesus knows. Like, even as I'm saying it out loud right now, I'm like, yeah, obviously. But for me, it, like, rocked my world. Like, he's been there and he's seen, like, Jesus in heaven, there, walking around, there at creation. Like, and then he came. And he's like, this is how it is. And we're like, sure, Jesus, yeah. He knows. Like, he knows. All caps, he knows. Amen. I'm just going to trust that there's at least one person in here who that blew their mind right now, and there was a reason. Mind blown. In the front row, everybody. Okay, so, point B. He speaks the word of God himself. Also, kind of a big deal. He is speaking God's words. When Jesus speaks, it is God speaking. I know that we're all like, yeah, Jesus is God in that weird way that it all works. Sure. But when Jesus talks, the words of God are coming out of him. It's a big deal. So he is the, he is the God-man who speaks the words of God. Point uh, C. He has measureless anointing. This is so cool, you guys. Just get excited about it. Okay, so Jewish rabbis were convinced that God gave his spirit to the prophets in measured amounts. So the spirit of the Lord would come upon people to speak a word from God, and then it would go. It was a a measured amount for a specific amount of time. What do we see in, in, um, did I put it in here? No, but in in chapter 1, when he gets baptized, he says, um... 32. Yes, 32. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. It never it never takes off. It stays. The anointing of the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus and stays. Measureless amounts. And what's awesome, so Jesus is has been um, given the Holy Spirit in a measureless amount. And then later we see, spoiler alert, when he leaves, he says, I will leave you with the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit gets deposited in believers as a seal, a guarantee of their salvation, of their adoption. So Jesus gets the Spirit in a measureless amount, and then he is the dispenser of the Spirit. Big deal, guys. Big deal. All right. Point D. He has been given all things. 
I know that none of these points are like you're hearing them for the first time, but all of them together, your view of, of Jesus should be just like growing. Okay, point D. He's been given all things. So remember uh, John the Baptist had said earlier on in this passage, you, cannot, uh, you can only have what's been given to you. The person can only receive what's been given to him from heaven. Jesus has been given all things. Big deal. Everything. Everything is under his authority. Everything has been given to him. He is measureless. He is limitless. He has power and authority over all things. Point E. Okay, we're jumping a little bit. I'm cheating a little bit because this one doesn't come from this passage, but it sums it up really well. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. He is superior to all things and all people. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the right hand. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Gosh, you could spend so much time on just that passage. The superiority of Christ. He is above all. All things come through him. He was there at creation. He makes purification for us. He's the exact imprint of God's nature, the radiance of God's glory. He is superior to all things. You can have the worship team come back up. Point F. He brings salvation, redemption, and reconciliation. Salvation, redemption, and reconciliation. So not just salvation. He doesn't just save you. If that was all he did, it would be mind-blowing. But then he redeems you. So he takes what was broken, what was lost, what was marred and shattered and fallen, all of your failures, all of your coming up shorts. He takes all of that, and then he redeems it. He doesn't just get rid of the bad stuff by saving you. He transforms the bad stuff into being used for his glory and for your good and to advance the kingdom. He redeems. If he just saved and redeemed, it would be amazing. He also reconciles us to God. So there's us and there's God and there's this sin chasm between us blocking us from this holy God. He not only saves us and redeems our lives, he is the reason that we are able to be reconciled with God. And the God of the universe and a fallen and broken people are able to come together in intimate relationship because of Jesus. And this one isn't in your notes, but I thought of it this morning. I would also add not just salvation, but redemption. Not just redemption, but reconciliation. Not just reconciliation, but sanctification. He doesn't stop. He keeps working in you. He keeps working out his, your stuff in you. He keeps working in you to conform you into the nature of Christ, the image of Christ. Getting all of this stuff out. Sanctification means he is increasing and you are decreasing. 
And then in this passage, the last passage, verse 36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. That has eternal life. It doesn't say will have in the future. Has eternal life is this already but not yet nature of the kingdom. It's not just a future expectation after you die. It is a present experience. It is a present experience. You have eternal life now. You have life with Christ now because you've been saved and redeemed and reconciled and are in the process of continually being sanctified. Your experience with eternal life with Jesus is already starting now. It's not just a future hope. It is a future hope, but it is a present hope. It is a present reality. So he is the point. We live in an upside down world that tells us that we are the point. Churches operate like they're the point. What church do you go to? Oh, who do you, who's your favorite speaker? Don't answer it. Kenny's going to listen. <laughs> who's your favorite speaker, right? Oh, I don't like that church because of this. Or churches feeling like they're better than this church or this pastor. Being about them. Pastors, gosh, pray for pastors. It's so easy to get puffed up and it be about you. And it's about Jesus. Our job is to point to him. How many people do you have at your church? Right? How, is it growing? Is it growing? Oh, it's growing. Great job. I don't know. We didn't do anything. Jesus. We just want to point to Jesus. Individuals act like they're the point. What makes you happy? You do you. What makes you happy? Pursue it. Get after it. Climb that ladder of success. What if Jesus says, don't climb the ladder of success? I want you to stay right where you are because I'm going to do something in that. Will we stop? Because it's about him and not me? Are we going to push past it and keep going? What do I need to do to increase? It's all about us. The good news is, is it's not about you. That is not the bad news. That is the good news, that it's not about you, because you don't actually want it to be about you. All of us sitting in our seats right now, to some degree, know that we're a mess. You're sitting there, and you're like, yeah, I'm kind of a mess. This is all about me. We're all in really big trouble. <laughs> the good news is, is it's not. It's not about you. Did you just hear those last verses, who it's about? That Jesus. That Jesus, who is power, powerful, all-powerful, all-knowing. That Jesus, who's been given all things, who's superior, who has a measureless anointing from the Spirit, who speaks the words of God himself, who's from heaven and bears witness to what he knows. This Jesus is who it's about. He is good, and he is worthy, and he is able you don't want it to be about you. Because we don't know what's good for us, but we have an almighty God who not only works things out for his glory, but simultaneously works things out for our good. Maybe you've been living like it is about you, and you're realizing that it's not working. Maybe you feel like you are reminded this morning that you just need Jesus. You've got to refocus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Take your eyes off of your circumstances and your stuff. Maybe you need to lay down some of the stuff that has become the point in your life. Maybe it needs to be laid down. Maybe things that you need to take a step back and reevaluate some things. Who's on the throne? Who is it all about? 
you need to refix your eyes on Jesus this morning, we're going to move into a time of worship, and I want to encourage you to spend some time with Jesus. If you need prayer, we're going to have our prayer team over here. Guys, the enemy will want to keep you glued to your seats. Get prayer. Get prayer. I'll tell you, every time I actually do, I'm like, why don't I ask people to pray for me all the time? Like, just pray. Just pray for me. Because God works powerfully through prayer. So please get prayer if you need prayer. I want to end on this truth from uh, 2 Corinthians 10. It's so good. Because Jesus is, guys, Jesus is just so good. So it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, where now we go and we point people to Jesus. We're passed on that same ministry. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are, you are, Remembrance Community Church is, ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Jesus, if we leave here with nothing more this morning than a fresh glimpse into your awesomeness, then it's a huge win and we're so thankful. We just need you to increase. We want to see you with fresh eyes, Lord God. We want to see you in your glory. God, would you show us your glory through your word and through your son. God, I just pray for every man and woman in this room right now, those who have not yet been reconciled to you, who have not yet accepted your gift of salvation. God, would you move in hearts? Would you move people to come and receive prayer? For those of us who've lost sight of what the point is, God, would you refix our our eyes on you? Would you be our vision? God, would you just humble your church before you and an understanding that it is about you? And would you help us to be so filled by your spirit that we pour out our lives